As Jesus passed on from Capernaum, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is God's word. Father, thank you for the chance to be with your people. Uh, thank you for this Father's Day and for the, the many uh, dads who are represented here in this church um, and the ones who've invested in us. Um, thank you, too, for the way that you're a father to the fatherless and even uh, that you fill in the gaps that our fathers have missed. And we thank you for that, that our dads and all their imperfections are just pointers uh, to you who are our Father in heaven, who offer us everything that we need. I pray that today as we take a look at your word and even try to go deeper and try to imagine what's happening here behind the text, that you would guide us, that we'd be faithful in this, and that you would lead us and give us wisdom I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this, this particular sermon is uh, the first time of kind of comparing uh, disciples. And these two, we don't have a lot of info about, which is, makes things a little bit interesting. Um, and we, we have talked about others like that. But in this one, I, I want to kind of put these two next to each other and consider what do we, what do we learn when we consider that these two uh, were called to follow Jesus. And the first is Matthew. And the second is Simon the Zealot. Um, and so here's, here's kind of the premise I'm going to get at. I'll just tell you what it's all about, and then you can decide if you want to stay or just take off after I give you the premise. But uh, last year, I taught about discipleship, and we talked about Paul and Barnabas at one point. I don't know if, you, if any of you remember that, but the, there's this key moment in the life of Paul and Barnabas, and we're actually going to come back to Barnabas as uh, just considering him as a disciple of Jesus on the 4th of July. Um, interestingly. But the, uh, the Paul and Barnabas incident that is of great interest is this moment where the Zoom call threw you off. And, you know. But no, it's this great moment where the, uh, there's a division where Paul thinks it's best not to have a traveling companion, a certain one. Barnabas feels like it's better to have one. It's this disagreement that they have. Seems kind of like a minor thing. But it says it was a sharp uh, disagreement and that they, they had to part ways, and that they weren't able to travel together. And so last year on that topic, I said, look, sometimes this happens. And sometimes, really, to, to be united, there can be something where you say, look, I can't be with you right now. Even though Paul and Barnabas were clearly united under the same church, um, there was no sense of having left each other's church or having different you know, kind of elders are being disconnected entirely. 
in that situation. Now, that was last year. This sermon, I'm trying to show you that typically, I think it's not supposed to come down to that. Um, I want to show you that I think we can deeply disagree and follow Jesus, not only in the same you know, big C church like the body of Christ, but in the same community as in the local church. Um, and if you're thinking out there, you know, oh, great, Andy's aiming at me because of something I said, I, believe me, I'm not. I, this has been planned for a long time. So I, I'm really not. Um, here's where I want us to start imagining. There must have been profound differences between Matthew and Simon. I just want to work this out a little bit. In a way, they're both lesser-known disciples. Uh, Matthew writes a gospel, right? So, so if you watch, uh, if I, I've been referring to The Chosen because it's gotten some people thinking about this. If you watch The Chosen, Matthew is like all over that show. He is one of the, the big characters of that show. But there's a lot of imagination going into that because we really don't know that much about him. We, we know that he writes a gospel, but he isn't this major figure uh, within any of the gospels. And Simon, on the flip side, is hardly there at all, um, the Simon the Zealot. He seems to be drawn out in the, the text that Vi read to us. He's drawn out of this larger assembly of disciples that were following Jesus by Jesus to be part of the 12. And that's a huge deal. I mean, it's a, it's a huge honor. It's a huge responsibility. Clearly, Jesus was very purposeful in doing it. Um, but at the same time, he may be the one we hear from and see the least in, in all the rest of the Gospels. Um, you just don't hear a lot about the guy. The key thing we know about Matthew is that he was a tax collector, and that says a lot. There is a lot to kind of imagine around that idea, because tax collectors worked for Rome, and they collected taxes from the fellow Jewish uh, folks. So they were you know, Jewish people tasked with collecting taxes from their own people on behalf of the occupying government. And, um, and they often charged too much. Uh, they often too, took too much tax. And so this brought them wealth. Um, they probably wouldn't have done this otherwise. It was kind of a dangerous thing to do. It alienated them from people. So it, it brought them money. There was a reason that they took the role. And it caused them to be outcast and despised. And even in his own gospel, uh, Matthew, who you'd expect, you'd expect him to do two things. You'd expect him not to call himself the tax collector, which he does, because um, that's a very negative thing to like name himself. Um, but you'd also expect him to maybe take it easy on tax collectors and say things like, you know, we weren't so bad, we had our reasons. But actually, the way he characterizes tax collectors, even in speaking of other ones, is, is in the negative. There are a couple of instances where he mentions just tax collectors as a whole, and and he doesn't put it in a positive light. They were viewed as traitors and lawbreakers. They were viewed as religiously and politically corrupted. Um, and, that, and therefore, we aren't surprised that when Matthew, after he begins to follow Jesus, he invites his friends over to the house to meet Jesus, and these friends were described as sinners. And that doesn't mean, you know, in the theological sense, everybody's a sinner, but that means these people were, were known culturally as just, you know, crooked, sinful people. And, and we have those folks in our society. I mean, this probably wasn't just in the, in the most religious of circles. There, there are people, I think, in our society that just generally everybody goes, yeah, 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 they're not great, right? And that was, those were Matthew's friends. The law lovers wouldn't touch him. 
They wouldn't be a part of it. He had to be friends with sinners. They were the only people interested, the only people available. So Simon, Simon the Zealot, um, you know, is about the opposite, we can assume, from his title. And, and we really only know that title, the Zealot. And there's, in, in some older Bibles, like if you, if you came in here with an older King James, it might say Simon the Canaanite. And that's kind of a mistranslation. The word sounds a lot like Canaanite, but it really is the word for being zealous. Uh, we see it elsewhere in the Apostle Paul when he speaks about being zealous for the traditions of his fathers. He used that, uses the same exact term. And so there's one of two things going on here with Simon. He's either part of a, of a group that's kind of forming that will become more and more prominent that were just named zealots, and these were people who were really trying to overthrow the, the occupying government. Or at the very least, he was known as being extremely zealous and passionate about the law and God's people and Israel. So he either was a part of this emerging group, or he was just very you know, known as an individual, which might even make him more zealous if he had that tag on himself without that group identity. But Whatever the case, he's very zealous to some degree, both of these groups, zealous for following the law and very zealous against Rome and for the cause of Israel as a nation to free itself from Roman rule and to come to its end time or eschatological aim of restoration and power in the earth. Now, that, those are some words right there, right? The, the people that we're talking about here in Israel, they're, they're awaiting a savior, a promised Messiah, but this person is going to do what they believe to be, he's going to bring about the end of the promises in scripture, which is what we would call, you know, something of an eschaton. That's the big word for kind of this end game, end result. And the the result that they expected was that Israel was going to become prominent again on the earth and it would rule. And so he was zealous for this to some degree. Or a third possibility is I suppose that he was sort of both. That maybe he was zealous for the law and he was becoming more and more politically zealous. I don't don't know. But whatever the case, he's one of the least likely people in Israel to join a team with Matthew, right? And vice versa. Matthew is the least likely person in the world to say, you know who I'd like to hang out with is Simon the Zealot. It's just not going to happen. It is off the table. It is crazy polar opposite. I can't even associate with you kind of stuff. But Jesus called them. He called Matthew first, and then he called Simon out of the 12. And he gave them both the same ministry. He sent them out with the same groups of disciples, sometimes two by two. I like to imagine he teamed them up for those moments. You know, I don't, we don't know, but wouldn't that be great? They're just walking down some little dusty road together going like, you know, Matthew's like, so are you going to stab me now? Like, is that your plan? And the zealot's like, I don't know. Do you have my money? Right? And then just having these awkward conversations, it's hard, hard to say. And then at the end of Jesus' ministry, not only had he called them together, he gives them the same commission to go into all the nations. He's, he's brought them all the way in to where they are his faithful followers, and they're given the same commission and sent out. Matthew, interestingly, who is the least faithful to the nation of Israel before, becomes the gospel writer. 
And Simon, who was the zealous one, who was going to, you know, take over and do some great things, is the one we don't hear anything about. But we know that they were given the Holy Spirit, given the same mission by Jesus, and and most likely they were both martyred um, for their faith in Jesus, that they, they died for the sake of this Jesus who called them. So they must have been radically changed, right, and transformed by Jesus. It's interesting that both kept their titles. Um, Simon's, uh, people will say, well, it's probably to differentiate him from Peter, right? So Simon Peter, so you got to say Simon the Zealot. But interestingly, Matthew didn't have to keep the, the tax collector title. There was no reason to differentiate him. He was the only one. Like both of them, it's really interesting. It shows us something, I think, that in Christ we are united, but we're not necessarily the same, nor do our prior identities have to be denied or erased. There's something to Matthew holding on to the title of tax collector. It's, it's a really humbling thing he does to write about himself in that way and not hide that. Now, it's a work of imagination. I've already kind of invited it, but I wonder, I wonder what it was like, right? I, just wonder with me. Let's just think about this. What, I wonder if they softened toward one another and accepted one another and loved one another at some point. Um, I wonder if they still saw things differently. I wonder if they, you know, did they just come to this uniform understanding of the world? Like they started following Jesus, and all of their differences faded away, and they all just, everything they looked at, they're like, you see blue? I see blue. The grass is green. The grass is green. Is this song beautiful? Yes, it's beautiful. Everything's, we're, everything's samesies, right? I mean... I kind of doubt it. Have you ever been a part of a church or community or marriage or friendship or anything in which that happened? No, nothing ever, right? Yeah. What's that like for us? I don't know one of you, and I'm, I'm like the, I'm the pastor, right? So much influence. I don't know one of you that thinks like me. I haven't met one of you where I've gone, you're just totally me. Not even my own child. It's Father's Day. I don't even get, get to have my own kid think like me. Like even today, that didn't happen, right? We have different lives. We have different pain. We have different joys. We're just different people. We have different personalities, different proclivities. Um, and the best thing, I think, that could happen is what happened to Simon and Matthew. And that is that those who are different unite under Jesus. And that Jesus does something profound despite our differences. I was talking to a pastor from Phoenix this past week, and he, he was kind of trying to wrap his mind around some of the just kind of current troubles that every single church I know of is facing. Um, and he was saying, it feels like this is what's happening in the body of Christ. It's like, and he's trying to work out Paul's body of Christ metaphor. And he's like, it's like there's this body of Christ and people are going to like churches of all arms and churches of all ears and churches of all eyes. And the body is like ripping and there's all these weird looking churches of just like arm people and mouth people. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but it was pretty wild imagery to, imagery to think about. But, but it's, he's not totally wrong that there's, I don't think it's happened. But I think you see a movement towards something like that. And, it, and it's kind of natural because we understand people who think like we do. 
But the, the metaphor of the body of Christ starts to break down severely when that happens. In Paul's body imagery, you know, being a body, like a diverse group of people that all function together, I mean, think about, here I am, I'm a, I'm a body up in front of you, look at me move, right? Like I have, I can see, I can speak, there are all these different things I process, I can sometimes play basketball, like sort of better than some people, but not as good as others, like John's starting to get better than me now, like things are happening, you know, there, there are these things that I can do as a body, and... Um, and as a body of Christ, there's, there's something beautiful about it. It all works together. But at the same time, our different parts don't always understand each other. My brain can dunk. Okay. My brain can throw down. My body, the re- my legs cannot. Okay. And my lower back cannot land from dunking. It doesn't, it doesn't always work. Um, You know, the arm wants to get to work. The brain wants to process and plan. My butt wants to sit. This is what's happening within my own, within my own body. This is what happens in groups of people. We have all these different, these different strengths, these different tendencies, these different things going on. There's people that want to get to work. There's people that want to process and plan. There's people just want to rest. It's all going on, and that makes things complicated. Being a body isn't the easy thing to do, but it keeps all the various elements aligned and it represents Jesus most faithfully to the world because Jesus, who is imaging God to us, valued all the things that we do and he kept them in a harmony that we struggle to keep. You see Jesus doing hard work and exhausting himself, but then you see him like I I almost envision him sometimes. I've read God, like I like to read gospels all the way through. And a couple times I've thought, he's literally running away from people constantly. He's, you know, it's like he's, try, he's like getting out on the water. He's going up hills. And, and you almost get this idea when you read it. It's like there's this big crowd. He's there. He's with them. And then he's like, and he just like darts up a hill. But he says when he does that, he needs to be with his father. He needs to rest. He needs to pray. He needs to rejuvenate. He can plan, he can confront, he can comfort, he can show mercy, he can declare judgment. He's perfectly balanced, and we lose balance when we aren't faithfully diverse. So that kind of calls the question, what do we need to be united then? And I'd like to consider, as we remember Matthew and Simon, Christ's call, our identity, a new identity, and like this idea of committed humility. What do we need to be united? Let's say Christ's call. This one, as I spent time thinking about this, I think this is the main factor. When I really, when I really dialed in, I thought, what unites Matthew and Simon? It's this, Christ's call. And I don't think I factor this in enough or, or we in general factor this in enough. We've lost something important in our setting. We live in an age of consumer choice in a very transient city full of churches Though, if you, if you look at Tucson's data, we're a very unchurched city, they say. But you can go around this neighborhood and find several. There's one right over there. There's one right over there. Um, there's one across, you know, across Broadway. There's two across Broadway that I can think of right off the top of my head. Um, you know, there's, there's so many, you have so many options, it feels like. Um, how, and how difficult it is for us to remember that there used to be entire cities that had a church, and that was it. If you were the Christian in Capernaum, you went to the one group of Christians. 
uh, in Capernaum. And Jesus' disciples had one Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? They had one teacher to follow, just one Jesus. And as I say that, I hope on the second one, you're like, well, Andy, but we still have one Jesus, right? But the truth is, on that second one back, the way the Bible describes the church is that there is only one of those. There is only one church in in the Bible. There's the gathering of all of the believers of all of time. They are the, the church. And Jesus is its head. So, you know, it'd be hard for all Christians in Tucson to get in the same space. I get that. But the way the scriptures speak of church, there is only one. There is zero concept in the church, or sorry, in the Bible, of the idea of there being thousands of churches. It's just not there. And so what that means is that you are either in Jesus' church or not. That's it. Those are the two options. You either are in it or you are not in it. You're either following Jesus or you are not. That's that. There's not like I follow Jesus across Broadway, but not with those people. That is impossible. You, uh, there used to be this phrase that went around where people talked about my Jesus. My Jesus wouldn't do that. My Jesus wouldn't do that. And I remember thinking even when I was younger, like, does this presuppose there like, there's a Jesus for every one of us, right? We each get a Jesus. Because that's definitely not true. I want you to imagine uh, Jesus' response to you or to me. Let, just, just put yourself in this situation. You're following Jesus. Imagine it. And think of people that you think are wrong in the world. And Jesus says to one of them, follow me. And you turn to Jesus and say, um, hey, I don't do things with them. Um, you know, I don't. You know, you could imagine one of your recent 2020-21 issues, right? You could pick one out of the sky, one of the, one of the hundreds we've seen. And, to, and you could say that to Jesus, I don't do that, and so I don't know that I should really be with them. And just imagine Jesus. Just, just take this in. How do you think he'd respond? How do you think he would feel about that? What do you think he'd say to that? We don't have a Bible verse of this, right? I I can't quote you, but just imagine that. How would Jesus respond? If he'd said, follow me, and you were like, ah, now how do you think Jesus would pray? to God about that. Now this we know. This we, do, we, this we do know. Just, this is long, but let this be an exercise of kind of a new thought to layer on the thought I just invited you. Just listen to Jesus pray. John 17, 6. Jesus looking to his father says, I've made your name known to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you've given to me is from you, for I've given them the words that you 
gave me. And they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, so sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world, and for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may be sanctified in truth. I don't ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory you've given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you have sent me. I made known to them your name. I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. That's what Jesus prayed for. Now, as I said when I was opening, Paul and Barnabas situations do happen. They've, they've happened here. But I think we really do need to take seriously the fact that Jesus has called us together to follow him and brought us here to follow him together. As I mentioned in the beginning, Paul and Barnabas didn't get to be totally separate. They had the same elders. They were a part of the same church. And, and a key in this body metaphor is even this idea of, like, here, here Paul and Barnabas, they're sent out kind of as apostles and missionaries, but they had these other people with roles in their lives, like elders and stuff like that, that helped tie them together, even when they, when they didn't feel very tied together. And that's, that's an important piece of, the, of the, the kind of imagery here, in these different roles that exist that help to serve and keep us together. We need to keep that in mind. So Paul and Barnabas disagreed on on strategy and separated for a time. But that's not always or often what we should do. We we as Americans, I think that is what we do all the time. That is our default. We especially probably need to hear not, we we probably don't need to hear nearly as much, hey, it's okay to be separate, because that's like, we're just like, that's the, that's the, I don't know, that's the water slide. It's like, woo, we'll do it. We need, to, we need to press into more of what Matthew and Simon did. 
in which they followed Jesus together. Because, you know, and, and why, why do that? Why, why do that when there's so many options? It's as I've been saying, we all belong to the same God. We're headed to the same eternal city. Our destiny in scripture is that we worship in the same diverse multitude of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, and language. That's where we're headed, so we should be getting closer to that. That would be Christian growth. It is not maturity. It is not love. It is not Christ honoring to disassociate with people who God is eternally associating with himself and trying to associate with you. And if we do, if we come to that point, we should do so with absolute trembling and with tears and with a desire to return to one another as soon as possible. And be sure, I, I, I really, that line of questioning that I was trying to invite you to earlier, be sure it would be for a reason that Jesus would look you in the eye and say, it breaks my heart, but I agree with you. Like, be really sure about that. And I think that list is shorter than we often think it is. We tend to take some, like, doctrinal stuff very seriously. Um, you know, like, that's, we're all divided. I mean, there's probably one of my favorites, because it's just right down the street, is the Free Will Baptist Church. You know there's a couple doctrinal differences, because it's in the name, right? It's very easy. I've actually had great, great times talking with those folks. They've actually showed up to all of the things we've co-hosted for the community, which is awesome. But, it's, but you can tell, you know, they kind of broadcast, like, look, here are two key doctrines, baptism, free will, you know, that's our gate, and that's kind of there. Um, but, but this, so we tend to take these doctrinal things seriously, but listen to me, this is keystone doctrine that I am telling you about. I'm not saying don't take doctrine seriously. I'm saying take this seriously, the union of God's chosen people to their Savior and his command to love Jesus by loving one another. Like, that's doctrine. It might be more important than some of the other stuff. I would venture to say it absolutely is really, really, really important. So if Jesus has called you, he's called you to follow him. And he's placed you with some people. And Jesus always places us within his church as the broader, the one church. And then I think, as with, with these 12 people, that Jesus and, and God are involved enough to have placed you with the, the smaller group in, in your city, your area. I think he's involved in that. And these people are not supposed to be the same as you. I think as when he went out and he picked his disciples, no two of which are the same, I think he assembles all the gatherings like that. And they're supposed to be following Jesus together. And we should take this very seriously. Okay? So, Jesus' call. I think that's a huge factor. The next factor, a new identity. As Christians, we're born again. Speaking of doctrine, there's John 3. There's a new birth. You're born into a spiritual self. The imperishable spiritual self. That's a big idea. It needs a whole sermon but you have a new existence enlivened by Christ and his spirit. That's true in the scriptures. We become adopted into the eternal triune God through the merits of Jesus, our elder brother. That's a lot of words. 
That's a new family. That comes from John 1, Romans 8 and 9, Ephesians 1, and Galatians 4. That God is bringing together all the people that he calls, he puts into one family. There's an adoption that happens. We who were not a people become a people. We become citizens of God's kingdom, even though we may feel like aliens and strangers in the world. And we're created and made into a kingdom and priests in God's temple. That's 1 Peter 2. I read to you from that at the beginning. Do you see just in those few examples of what the Bible describes as happening to us, like the levels of identity in there? There's new birth. I mean, one of our biggest pieces of identity, right, is how I was born. I'm a human. What was I born as? Well, God is saying, I give you a new birth. You were born again. Even that fundamental piece of identity, I am redefining it to some degree. The family we belong to, how much of that, I mean, it's Father's Day, right? And, we, and you tend to have thoughts about your father and some of it's like, ah, you know, I've seen the posts already today, like, oh, the best dad, you know? And then there's the ones that are silent, you know? And, and, it's, and then the, the, the complicated stories. There's this family of origin thing and God is telling us all throughout the scriptures, did you notice how many verses I listed just in rapid fire on adoption? That idea of I'm bringing you into a new family, it's a big deal. In scripture, it changes your identity. The people, the nation I belong to, the religious background that I have, Peter is addressing those. God's calling you into a new kind of national political identity and religious identity in which he is at the center of all of it. And in these scriptures, we see a uniform understanding given by Jesus, held by the disciples and Peter and even Paul, that God is giving us an identity that needs to become primary. It doesn't erase our other identities. He gave us those two. As I mentioned with Matthew and Simon the Zealot, they, they don't seek to be Matthew, a former tax collector, and Simon, a former zealot. But he gives us an identity that supersedes them all. And that's why Matthew, a tax collector, and Simon, a zealot, have a chance to come together. I was thinking about this, you know, did they negotiate? Did they kind of sit down and go, Matthew goes, look, you know, I was in it for the money, okay? I was in it for the money. I didn't really ever like all the Jewish customs. They were going to pay me triple. And Simon the Zealot goes, you know what? Like, I wish I had more money too, but it's the, you know, we just really need to see Israel get stronger, right? And then, the, you know, Simon the Zealot goes, look, I know some people that have money, I'll give you more money and I'll chill out a little bit and kill less people. And Matthew goes, okay, now we're talking. I think I could get along with that. If I get the money, you kill less people. This is ridiculous. They did not do this, right? They didn't do any of it. There was no negotiating. One didn't convert to the ideology of the other. That's not what happened. Something deeper happened. They received a new identity. It came from God. And only from God. It especially comes through God in Jesus when they were called to follow him. That is what happened. All the other stuff got secondaried. Maybe just they, they let it go. Or it at least went down a notch to where this new identity in Jesus was the, the main thing. And that's how they were able to walk together. I mean, how would you negotiate those two? How do you negotiate the, the polar ends of the spectrum today? 
You've got to do something crooked or something weird to do it. There's, there's no way to bring it all together where it works for everybody without letting some things go. Um, that's not what Jesus does. The call of Jesus happens. He called Matthew from his tax collector's booth, and Matthew left it. He drew Simon out of the group of the other followers, and Simon began to follow him. He put them on the same team. Matthew leaves his money behind. Simon, his sword, both both become poor, both become martyrs. They both take an entirely different path following Jesus because they had a new identity. They'd been been changed by the same God in Jesus. They'd been brought near to the same God through the same Jesus. They'd been given the same mission to be part of the same people and the same kingdom that was not of this world by Jesus. So here's the key. God made us diverse in our thinking, our genders, our skin tones, our experiences, and thousands of other ways, but he gives us an identity that comes first. And when that identity is truly first where it belongs, our unity is possible. I don't know if you've ever experienced this in, in like another country where you go somewhere where in, in, a, in a way your stories are so different and your experiences are so different and even your angle in the world is so different. I, I've had a chance to work with church leaders in South Africa, Romania, Australia, and there's something really incredible that happens. Sometimes you sit down with people from this completely different experience and you, and you begin to speak about Jesus and it's just there. There's just this connection. There's just this bond that you can't, it's like, how did that, how is that possible? We've had completely different lives. And I think when that first identity of being a Christian is primary, the secondary stuff can be strange when you really get into it, right? Like on the very surface level, I remember in Romania being served a plate of food that I was like, I will die if I eat this. Like, and, and I ate it though, and I didn't die. But you know, there's just all you start realizing we're so different. I mean, that's, that's really minor stuff. I mean, you realize politically what they've been through and you start to talk about your experience. I remember making a joke about how uh, I, I just made some, some joke about how America was the best. I remember getting all these weird looks and going, oh, right. They're on the other side of the world and I'm an idiot. Um, but the primary things can just settle down where they belong. Or sorry, the secondary things, when the primary thing is Jesus. Um, you can tell when something else isn't primary. When it rises up and Jesus becomes muted on the issue, disregarded on the issue, trivialized on the issue, or utilized on the issue. There was a sad story in Nigeria this past year um, there was a couple that pastored a church together, Emmanuel and Juliana Balea in, uh, in Nigeria. They were gunned down on their farm. And in the news, you may have heard about it. It was speculated it was probably a Muslim group um, that did it. But then people did some digging, and it, and it wasn't. It wasn't a Muslim group at all. Um, in fact, these folks were, uh, they were CRC, um, from the CRC denomination that we're kind of connected to. Um, the guy who was shot was uh, working on a worship thesis with Calvin Theological Seminary um, from Nigeria. And the, the people that killed him were from the CRC church from the next town, and he'd gone to seminary with the pastor. And they weren't targeted, which is sort of helpful to know. They were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But it turned out that what was going on 
is there was a long-standing political argument about who owned what land, and it became more and more tense and more and more dialed in until blood was shed, right? Christian on Christian, reformed Christian on reformed Christian, seminarian on seminarian. And um, how does that happen? Something secondary became primary. When you bring the gun out and take someone's life over land, right? Something secondary has become primary. I think it's harder to love your neighbor one town over who you have the land dispute with than it is to love the one across the world sometimes. And that can seem crazy, like, oh, how could that ever happen, right? Except in this last year, Christians punched protesters, resorted to their weapons, and killed people here in the States, and lied and cheated to gain ground on one another, covered up abuse. The list is really long in the United States of things we did to each other. We did shed blood in the past year and a half, probably every year before. And, we, and when we didn't shed blood, we you know, hated in our hearts. Are we more civilized than the Nigerians? No. We're prone to the same, same stuff, the same evils. John said a really helpful thing when we were preparing for this sermon. He said, look, it's not the views, the different views that tear people apart. It's how much faith we have in the views that is greater than our faith in Jesus. I thought that was spot on. So what do we need to do? How do we fight the divides that come when these secondary identities raise up and become primary? I think that's the work of the church. We can't just deal with that when a big conflict rises up. We have to impress into one another. That's the body's role one to another, is that we impress into one another our identity in Christ. We enforce it. We help each other tear down all other identities. That is the work of the church and by the way, this, the, the enemy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk real spiritual here for a second. I mean, this is how, for all of time, the people of God have been picked apart and destroyed. You can see it in the 12 tribes of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees of Jesus' day, C.S. Lewis in his day and his book, Screwtape Letters, which I just put one on the shelf back there the other day, if you haven't read it. But Screwtape Letters is a fictional uh, elder demon instructing a younger demon on how to tempt people. And one of his kind of... Uh, softball, you know, like slow pitch softballs that he gives to his younger demon is you just, to, just to get them really irked with each other over the little, the little differences that they have. And it'll completely turn them against each other and turn themselves against God. And so what's, C.S. Lewis is not really telling a story about demons. He's trying to teach us the temptations that really destroy the church and what your enemy knows he can do, right? Just, it's little things. Get them annoyed, just a little annoyed with each other. Now, and I feel like I need to say, if, there's, if you're like, the enemy, okay, is that real? I mean, look, there's a, there's a problem of evil that the whole, our whole culture knows is there, right, and is grappling with. Um, it feels purposeful, the evil deeds that are done. They're, they're like unified over time. It's like the same old themes keep coming back. Um, it feels personal. There's always this like hate underneath it, right? This dark seed of hate 
And they're consistently decaying situations, breaking relationships, ripping people apart, turning them against each other. Personal, unified, purposeful. Maybe that is what they are. You know, maybe they don't just feel that way. Maybe that is what they are. Maybe when the Bible talks about this kind of mystical, you know, this demonic fort, maybe it's real because it sure feels like it. So if our identity, as we deal with that, if our identity as a farmer is with those Nigerians or a firefighter or a tax collector or our political identity, whether we're a zealot, whether you're like a Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Green Party, your racial identity, if any of it becomes your primary identity, beware as a Christian and surrender it in community to Jesus. And that'll lead us to committed humility. This is my last thing to say. Um, Committed to Jesus who called us, humbled before Jesus with our new identity, willing to extend grace as Jesus extended it to us. This is the Christian path. And some of you may still be thinking, so when do I draw the line though, Andy? Like, when when do I draw the line between when something's just wrong and I shouldn't be associated with those people. I still haven't heard you work that out. I'm not going to work that out, okay? Because there are better questions. Where did Jesus draw the line for me? That would be a good question. How can I show as much mercy as I have been shown mercy? Where does God draw the line on who is right and wrong? I'll give you the answer to that one. Jacob was illustrating it back in the side room. He didn't even know it. He was playing darts, right? He had one non-sin on the board. I saw it. He hit the dead center once, and he sinned a bunch of times after that. Because the word sin is, is like an archery term for hitting the perfect dead center every time. So where does God draw the line on the, the, the line on who's right and wrong? He draws it perfect. If you're, not, if you're not perfectly right entirely, you sin against God. Does that sound oppressive? It's not. It's the great democratizer. Who would dare speak down on their brother when they accept that definition of sin? This is why the Old Testament law has sacrifices for unintentional sins. Which means this, you had to give a sacrifice on the altar for the things you thought were right. Have you ever thought about that? I tend to just think about, well, it's probably just the accident. I don't think so. An unintentional sin is just anything you didn't intend to be sin. That includes everything you thought was right that wasn't. There was a sacrifice for that. The Old Testament Testament is preparing us for Jesus Jesus didn't just die for the sins you know and acknowledge are sins. He died for the sins you committed that you thought were right. He bled and died for our misguided convictions, every single one of them. And it's good to know this because it embeds humility in our souls. Imagine one day you stand before the throne and God tells you something you were sure about politically, doctrinally, morally, that you were wrong. Would you bow before him and accept his appraisal? And if you'd honestly struggle with that, this is a gift. Here is a signpost to your idol. Go after it and throw it off the shelf. 
That will happen, by the way, something to that effect. You will stand before God and realize you'll see the the, the picture of what the judgment would be. But in Christ, that'll be a very small factor in what's going on at that judgment seat. Because through just your meager mustard seed seed of faith, which is you basically just going like this or bowing the knee and saying, have mercy, through that, Christian, you will stand clean and worthy and accepted in Christ. Because you were not right, and you're not now, but he was and is. And he willingly sacrificed himself for everything you've been wrong about, and he rose victorious to carry us on into everything that he prepared for those who are faithful because Christ was faithful, and we've been adopted into Christ. And that realization should cause our hearts to love Jesus more than any other piece of our identity. That's the ticket to making the primary identity the one that it is, is that he is so much greater than our secondary identities, because even when we're wrong in those, he died for them and offers us his perfection freely And you would say to someone like that, you can critique me because you gave your life for me. You can lead me because you called me and you have opened my eyes. You can bind me to anyone you want because I am hard to forgive and you bound yourself to me. I've noticed something. I've heard Tim Keller say this too, and it's proven true over the years. Those who know how hard they are to accept and forgive offer the most acceptance and forgiveness to others. It's a beautiful thing. Those who see that it cost Jesus everything, but he wholeheartedly gave himself for you, how can you not at least desire that the most difficult person for you to accept would be given the grace that's brought you near? We struggle with this. It's not easy. Which is why God has set himself as the judge and not us. And God has set himself as the avenger and not us. And he's the justifier and not us. And he is the one who calls and builds his church and stewards over his church and not us. And he's the one that lays down the timeline of the sanctification of others or the the road to holiness for them, not us. He's the one at work in their lives. And our role is to trust God not only with our lives, but the lives of others, the views of others, the actions of others. We may need to speak honestly. Sometimes that can be scary. Actions impact others. We are supposed to look at God's law and and say, hey, what does this mean? We're supposed to speak to one another, but we should be very careful not to reject one another, but to leave that in the hands of God. You want to know if someone is walking away from you as a Christian that they're doing it because they're walking away from Jesus. We should be known for being doggedly committed to Jesus, humbled by his cross, committing to following the one who saved us, and fighting for unity because Jesus wants it. Jesus brought people together. Jesus prayed for it, and Jesus died for it. So we're going we're gonna to gather around this table in a moment as we sing in just a little bit. And I want you to imagine this as the moment 
where we get to live out Jesus's words that we are like a city set on a hill. Because the city set on a hill that gives light to all the world does something that the world cannot do, right? It does something that the world looks at and says, how is this possible? And what this table is doing is it's drawing us all. We're going to be drawn in toward it. And we feed on one common food and we drink of one common drink. And the one common food is Jesus, the one who not only called us, but who laid his life down for us. And we drink of his blood. He shed his blood once and for all. And we are drawn to the same cup. And the cup not only speaks of his blood, because he said to his disciples, I won't drink this again until I drink it anew with you in my kingdom. So this speaks of the future in which we're all gathered together. And if we can actually, actually unify around Jesus alone and nothing else and bond together, that would be something that is irreproducible outside of Jesus. So come to him, the one who makes us unique, the one who dies for us, the one who calls us, and the one who brings us together. We're going to do three things now. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to spend a two-minute section of time in silence. This is a great moment uh, in the scriptures. There is, uh, there is this, this command that if you're, if you're going to the altar with your gift, right, and you're irreconciled with somebody, to leave your gift and run to them and be reconciled. And, and I think that the gist behind that is be very committed to being unified and reconciled with people. And then be very, very clear that Jesus, like when, and you imagine that person, they go and they, they reconcile and they come back and they bring their gift. Now they're reconciled to God. God has two high priorities, that you would be drawn to one another, love one another, and that you would be reconciled to him and his cross. So in our two minutes of silent reflection, just meditate on one or both of those whichever one you need to, and ask Jesus that he would make it real for you. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. I'll, I'll, have, I'll have a glove, glove and mask thing going on, so no matter uh, you know, what your, your caution level, I'll be respectful of that up here at the table. Um, and then we are going to sing together, giving is in the back, and then we're going to prepare to, to have dinner together, which is kind of the continuation of this table. So let's pray and we'll spend two minutes in uh, silent reflection. Father in heaven, may it be so. May it be so increasingly. It's disheartening to look at our divisions. It's disheartening to look at all the thousands of churches, the ways we don't talk. But God, we have great hope because of you. These things have always happened. But somehow, incredibly, your church really has always remained I think of the religions, I think of the nations, and for the thousands of years since you died and rose again, your church has marched on, and there's always been a true church, and it's always been unified, even though there's been a whole lot of attack from outside and from the inside. And I pray that it would be so in our city and that we would be part of the unity, that we would be part of building up your body, not not so we can be ecumenical or feel good about ourselves, but so that we can see you smile and so that we can do the work that you gave to us and so that we can live out of what you prayed for us 
and so that we can honor you before the nations. And I pray that this would be so. If there's anything in our hearts you need to convict us over now as we pray, any, any secondary thing that's creeping up to being a primary thing, please show us and do work in our hearts and bring us together in Jesus' name.